think theology's for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Theology. Theology. Unplugged. Hey friends, welcome to Theology Unplugged. This is Michael Patton, and I am really excited about today's show. Um, not because I just need to say that before I start, but because I'm really excited about it. It's, it's a great subject. It's one of my favorite subjects on the planet to reorient thinking. And that's what we're trying to do is reorient thinking, trying to remind you, trying to uh, not be ashamed of saying the same things we've said over and over and over again, just like Peter says in his epistle, because it is necessary for us all. I need reminders every day, that's for sure. And part of what we are doing here is being as unplugged as possible. And so what I mean by that is whenever you listen to this, at least, uh, I would not sound different. I would not talk different if we, if you were able to enter my mind and see the conversations that go on there. Um, try to be as real as possible. Try to be as raw as possible. Not unnecessarily, but because it it is necessary for us to really get to know each other and you to be able to see my heart and uh, be able to have enough courage to show other people your heart in an unplugged way. And that is, you know, so much of what I do is that it's like, I feel like I need to come before you and tell you things that just, just to, uh, I know that things are hard, not in just a big general sense, life is hard, but Today is hard. Every day is hard. And we all need encouragement so often. It's, I mean, I feel half the time I feel completely broke. And I have to work myself out of feeling broke and being scared. I have much trepidation and fear that I have to overcome on a daily basis. And anxiety of, of the future. And that's just my life. That's how I've been for a for quite some time now, those of you who have listened to me, you know that that's, that's how I am. And I've got to get encouragement. I've got to get daily encouragement. I've got to, I've got to re, relearn things that I have already learned and apply it to my new situations each day. Uh, some of you are aware of some of the difficulties that have gone on with me and with my family and the, the sexual assault, the rape of my daughter. God has been... Uh, you know, obviously something very, very new. I don't know that we ever expect or prepare or can prepare for any type of the the multitudes of of difficulties that this sin this this sin filled world affords us. But it is it is something that we are not immune to. Christians are not immune to. We are not immune to the the brokenness of the mind. It was whenever my sister before she had killed herself, and she told me my mind broke. Never understood what that meant, but I do now. It's broken sometimes, and you you may know that as well. It's just there's just something to where we can't think correctly, and we can we can fall into a massive time of of guilt and um, waywardness, even because we don't know how to approach God any longer. He so so you're not. As C.S. Lewis said, it's not that we are so afraid that we say. God does not exist, but we say, so God, this is who you really are. 
And I think that this subject here is something that will excite you about God. I mean, it's it excites me about God. It really does. Every time I get in, it's one of my favorite passages of all of scripture, and I've kind of scripture, and I've kind of, I've kind of reworked it some so that we can take a look at it in a different light and see, you know, some of the uh, not the deeper meanings, but just how it applies to us today. So much scripture was written, obviously, in a time and in a culture that the illustrations that were used there are are hard to apply to us today and hard to really see. We may be able to do it on a two-dimensional basis, but on a three-dimensional basis, it's much more difficult. So I want to talk to you about a reorientation of your thinking, a reorientation of your thinking about God, an exciting reorientation of your thinking, something that uh, is, is fearful yet exciting, something that uh, takes us aback but is uh, outstandingly uh, mind-altering and mind-blowing. Something that can be, if you approach it the wrong way, discouraging, but something whenever you approach it the right way is incredibly encouraging. We've talked about it many times before. Those of you who have known me know that one of my favorite doctrines, a doctrine is a uh, a belief, simply a systematic belief. It's a belief that we have about something that when we put all of the information that we have about that something together, then we have a conclusion that is called a doctrine. Sometimes the doctrines are tentative. Sometimes they are very well set. We, we believe them very deeply, and we're probably not ever going to change. Well, one of the doctrines that I can't see ever changing, because it's impossible to change, it'd be like having a triangle that has four sides. The moment you change it is the moment you had to reorient it to where it's actually the same thing, just dressed differently. Now, this is called the doctrine of aseity, aseity, A-S-I-E-T-Y, aseity. Uh, may have heard it before, maybe not. It comes from say, two words uh, in, in the Latin, say, um, and the negation of, of need, uh, without need, without, without previous any type of uh, 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 cause. Uh, God is say, He is beyond us. He is, he is without any previous cause or any previous um, uh, determining factor that makes him who he is. I know that's hard. Don't, don't, don't take it there. We're not going to just take all these uh, kind of weird abstract thoughts and not, not unpack them. That's part of the part of the purpose of what we're doing right here or what I want to do. I want to talk about the doctrine of aseity, but I want to talk about in relation to a particular scripture, in one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible, that I think uh, God comes out with incredible personality and with incredible force, with incredible uh, frustration with the Israelites, and tries to put them back in their place and let them know who they're dealing with. It's kind of like a microcosm of what goes on in the book of Job. Whenever Job has to have everything reoriented in order to understand God because of the misunderstanding that's going around with, with uh, Job and his friends. And, you know, the whole latter part of Job talks about God speaking and saying, who are you uh, before me? Who are you to, to put me on the, the, the stand and try to strike a gavel against me? 
at first it may come across arrogant, but just it, it's not. It's not if you understand exactly what, who it is that we're talking about. This is this is the passage that I want to talk about, or I'm actually just going to read this passage, and then I'm going to give you my own translation or my own um, my own uh, paraphrase or even interpretation of it, just in a short couple of paragraphs. It's Psalm chapter 50, verse 9 through 12. I love this because God comes to the Israelites, who, I guess, in their own thinking, have been bringing things to God, their sacrifices, their prayers, uh, the striking of a bull, their, their, their donations that they give to God of their own livestock and wealth and say, I'm going to sacrifice this to God so that I can please God, so that God, like the other gods who also get sacrifices, uh, will be able to be fulfilled in some sense, that he is going to be, uh, okay, he needs this. Uh, I know that God needs this, so I'm going to go to him and, you know, kind of like we have needs every day and the husband and the wife and fulfilling each other's needs so that, so that the other one will be satisfied. This is something we, we have because we are not a say. We are not of ourselves, from ourselves. Um, this is something that we, we do with each other because, because we are lacking. Uh, we fulfill each other in a, in a very uh, real sense. Relationships are built because there is a mutual exchange of who that person is so that the other person might be able to, to be more complete because without relationships, we are so, we are so lacking. And the central one is, of course, the husband and wife relationship. That's why I use that as an illustration, but we need each other. But here we have all of humanity, if you can think of it this way, uh, all of the Israelite, all of the Israelites, uh, thinking that whenever they came to God and they brought him something, they are fulfilling something that he was lacking in, he needed. He created them so that they could fulfill this. Um, you might ask these people, why did, why did God create you? If you could go back to the time and deal with the person that God's talking to here, and he'd say, well, God created us because he needed us in order to do this or that, to make himself feel better, for, to make himself more powerful, to make himself more satisfied with his own life. And so therefore, if you want uh, God to make you satisfied in your life, you're going to have to do a few things to satisfy his life. So again, this kind of mutual exchange of the person in order to fulfill the other person in a normal relationship. And God comes to us, he comes to the Israelites, and he, and he basically says, you know how the relationship works there on earth, where there's this mutual need, mutual benefit, mutual lack, mutual contingency upon each other. Um, that's not the way it is with me. Reorient your thinking. Think again. Our relationship is much different. And he wants to talk specifically about the sacrifices that they are given to him and his relationship, what they do for him. And so in Psalm 50, verse 9, he says to them, I have no need. I just pause right there, right there, and you could just leave it and we could go, go home. I have no need, and the implications of that. I know there's a lot more to come to it, and we've got to put it in context, but that is basically what he is saying. He's saying, I have no need. I have no need of a bull from your stall 
of goats from your pens. Remember, they're bringing sacrifices to the Lord. And they're, they're really proud of them, you know, the biggest bull they might sacrifice over to God because they want to fulfill the need of God more so than they would have if they had a smaller bull. I have no need of uh, goats from your stall, uh, goats from your pens, for every animal in the forest is mine. And the cattle on a thousand hills. I, lo I love that. I mean, the cattle on a thousand hills, that, that, that permeates every bit of what I'm talking about here today. Maybe I'll name this that, the cattle on a thousand hills. I don't know. Man, it might not be uh, very much, uh, get, get very many clips from that. But I love that, the cattle on a thousand hills. Remember, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That's our God. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. That's all. There's more to it if you want to read the entirety of Psalm chapter 50. It's a great, great passage, the whole thing. But that's the central part of what I want to talk about here right now and the doctrine of God's assay, his, his aseity, his of himselfness. I think I said just a minute ago, assay meant something. It means of himself. God is of himself. He is from himself. Now, let me give you a translation, because that's what I want to get to here and work through this and modernize it, because, you know, we got the, the cattle on a thousand hills, which I love that. I love the imagery, but I I mean, I'm not a farmer. You're not a farmer. Most of you aren't farmers. We don't know what it means to have a cattle on a thousand hills. My goodness, here in America, we didn't have the cattle revolution until the, until the 19th century. And, uh, you know, we finally started seeing the value of cattle and uh, using cattle much more. That's why we built all the railroads and such, so we get them across uh, the, all the cattle in the world. And you see these great cattle herds, and that's where cowboys come from. I think that they would have understood this a whole lot more. It would have been meaning, more meaningful to them, a cattle on a thousand hills. But for us, it's kind of like, yeah, cattle's all right. Yeah, cattle on a thousand hills, that's, that's pretty good. You know, I, I don't own any cattle. I don't aspire to own any cattle, but that's not what God is saying here. He's going to the deepest part of what they value, what they think they're giving over to him. And there's, he's saying, I own all that already. Those are all mine, a thousand hills. Every hill that you can find, I own that. Let me give you the loose translation, and then we'll talk about it a little bit more. And I hope so much this helps you. I just hope you get as excited as I do. Because if you don't, then I've ruined everything. Because I was, I'm so excited to do this one. I've already done it three times. And I've had to redo it. Because I'm like, no, I missed the excitement. Because I really, really am excited. Every time I hear this, I just about jump out of myself. And it's a reorientation. That's what it always is. It's kind of like an, oh, yeah, I forgot. I forgot this about you, Lord. It's not something that in my mind's eye I would necessarily want because it's not something I can understand until until I hear it from you and see the majesty of what you're talking about. So here's here's my interpretation, translation, paraphrase. This is God speaking, right? That's what he's doing in the other one. Let's get something straight. I don't need you. 
boom, this is the stuff. I'm going to be doing a commentary on my own translation here. But that's, there we go again. You could stop right there and we're done. Let me get something straight, God says to you, to me. I don't need you. How does that make you feel? Seriously, stop right there. How does that make you feel? Does it, does it make you upset? Because you want to be needed? I know we want to be needed for sure. You know, it's if nobody needs us, it's a hard thing to live by. But do we need God to need us? Or is that something different? Whenever he comes up and says, I don't need you. Let's get something straight. I don't need you. You need me. I am completely satisfied at all times. Your prayers do not make me more whole or stronger. I'm not as impressed as you think I am by your support, quote unquote, of my work. I don't lack and you don't sustain. It's the other way around. Now let's get to modernizing of the cattle on a thousand hills. I own everything. Wall Street is mine. Walmart is mine. Amazon is mine. The U.S. military, I own it. In 2016, the United States' total armed forces was 1,348,400 people. <laughs> I'm going to leave that there because that's just funny. wasn't talking to Amazon at the time, but it responded. For how long? I've, let me pause for a minute so that she will be quiet because I'm in the middle of something important. For how long? Uh, zero. I don't know. How long should I set the timer for? Cancel. <laughs> That's funny. I got to keep that in there. Okay. I own everything. Wall Street is mine. Amazon is mine. The U.S. military, I own it. Every Bitcoin, mine. I am the real estate tycoon of a thousand generations. Owning all the land on earth and a million other earths. Isn't that great now? I mean, a cattle on a thousand hills. How about a million other earths? Every single planet that there is. It's all mine. I own every bit of land. I own every bit of the seashore, uh, oceanfront property to the Great Plains. I own everything in the mountains, everywhere. Not just here. I mean, every, every planet is my maybe that wouldn't have made that much sense to them because the concept of what a planet is didn't really matter so much or is li much more limited. People may have uh, it would have been a more uh, uh, smaller universe that they're dealing with. But now we can really see what this means. Do not make the mistake of thinking I somehow lack in anything. You are talking to the beginning of all things. When you serve me, you are simply falling in line with reality. You see that? I'll, I'll come back to it in just a minute. Uh, when you come to me, you come on my terms because my terms make square reality, make right reality. My terms are burned by myself alone. There you go. See, like, if you come to him on his terms and you think he needs you on his terms in the sense of it fulfills something he's lacking, no, he even fulfills his own terms through Christ. I am a say. Remember uh, the aseity? This is a space, then S-E. 
God is a say. I am a say from myself. I am Yahweh, the being one. I chose to be your friend, not because I am lonely, but because I am awesome and I want to share in my awesomeness with you. I love you not because you complete me, but because I complete you and I am love. Now that's 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 what I get from this passage. It's not as if my translation here is something that is uh, you know overwhelming and brings more out of it than is actually there, because this is actually what it's saying. You could write your own. I encourage you all to take it and write your own. Find out the things that you see that is valuable in this world, and you you write it down that God does not need you. I I said this one time to to someone. It was years and years ago, whenever I first learned about the the uh, God that needs us. I I wrote about this the first time. And I, I was, uh, the person really had a response that said, you know, I don't, I, I, you shouldn't think that way, Michael, because God really does need you. It was almost like a counseling thing. It was almost like she came back and she said, oh, don't feel that way. You know, you are needed and God does need you. And please don't think that way. And I understand where she was coming from because she took it as something that was, that was sad. I was sad about, you know, I said, you know, God doesn't need me. And then she's like, oh, i got to change that because he's got to know his purpose in the world. That is not what we do here. We do have to come to the reality that God does not need us. He is completely satisfied at all times in himself. I love it because this is the way that God talks about himself so often. You know, the almighty as compared to other gods. Not the some mighty, but he, he controls everything. I love it whenever he calls himself and he names himself. I mean, how do you name this? How do you name, you know, God as he is? But coming with a with a, a statement, Yahweh, I mean, that was, that, that obviously that has encompassed everything that he is, but it's one of the best we have. It's so great to talk about Yahweh. And I love the Greek translation of the Septuagint whenever they talk about uh Whenever they translate this this uh, uh, tetragrammaton, the Yahweh, the the name of God, how do they translate it? They say, "The being one, the being and a participle, the being one, the one who always is." That's the best we got. He's just you know that one. He's the being one. And some talked about him in in the eleventh uh, century as the as the um, is the necessary being. I love that too. Great philosophical term about God. Uh, also, you have Aristotle, the unmoved mover. I mean, there's all kinds of ways we try to describe this, but we're all trying to do the same thing and talk about his aseity, his completeness. He is the first of all things. Everything after him is contingent, dependent upon him, but he is dependent upon nothing. There is nothing that he needs to satisfy himself at all times. He is who he is. He is the being one. He cannot be more satisfied than he is at all times. That's why you have the, the doctrine of the Trinity being, being such a great thing where you have God uh, being completely satisfied at all times with his own relationship. He doesn't, the, the, there's never been a time where he's been lonely or needed love. He's been complete at all times. There's nothing we do that completes him. And whenever he comes at us and says this kind of stuff, whenever he says, uh, you know, 
I do not need you. In the, in the psalm, he says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you the world is mine and all that is in it. He's saying, he does, you, you're not around here to serve me, to be able to fulfill something that I am lacking. Well, then why are we here, God? What is it? What is it you're saying? And and then you, you turn around and you say, God has this relationship with us. He has these requirements of us. He has his desires for us. Well, what are they for then? They're not for himself. He's complete. He's satisfied all times. They are for us. The reason why he calls us to himself, the reason why he calls us to Christ, the reason why he calls us to the relationship and, and doing the right thing is because he wants us to come into terms with reality, to become square with reality. He he wants us to love him because, not because in any sense he is completed, but because it completes us. He is love. He is always love. He has always been love. Therefore, for us to come and love him is just something that is that is squaring with reality, the celebration of truth, the celebration of the way things are. That's how, that's what we do each day whenever we love him and love others. We are celebrating reality with him. And it is a great reality. The opposite is a terrible, black, dark, uh, hurtful, painful reality that for some reason tempts us all the time to go in the wrong directions. Whenever we do what's right, whenever we follow him, whenever we set our eyes to him each day, it's not to fulfill him, it's to fulfill ourselves. It's because that is who we're supposed to be. And you know what? Let me tell you something. God is really excited about that. Why? Because he's always He's always excited about truth. It's not something that he's become because he created us and suddenly we, we can get excited because he's excited. It's because he always is. That's who he is. He's the being one. He's the one who has all of eternity in his own hands. And to Job, where were we whenever, whenever he created the entirety of the universe? Who do we think we are coming to a criticism of the being one. He is the being one who is eternal and without need. Now, I don't know if that makes you excited. That makes me completely excited. It really does. I'm sitting here saying, I am so excited because I'm not needed. And that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, I'm so excited because God is so awesome. And we forget about that. And he still loves us. He didn't need us, doesn't need us, but he still loves us. Why? Because that's who he is. That's reality. He can't be otherwise. He is excited to share with us in eternity. He is excited to share with us in his glory. That is the reason why he created us, because he's always been creative, always been gracious. And he'll always be this way because he is the being one and nothing changes within him. We will always be contingent. We will always be in need. He will never be in need, but his, it makes his love so much more powerful because look at him who we are worshiping. He doesn't need nothing. Theology 